Good morning, guys. Welcome to the round table. Ronnie, come on in, just get you a seat. We got a microphone, it'll help the sound in here, but uh, when Bill addresses the whiteboard, it may not help as much. Guys, I am, uh, I'm excited to be here. I don't know that I can really explain it. Uh, went to a funeral yesterday, and uh, something about going to a funeral during Holy Week, <coughs> loss of a dear father and friend, and seeing a family hurting is not something I ever want to see. But uh, death during Holy Week. It's Monday, Thursday. Sunday's coming. Three o'clock this morning, I sat up straight to bed wide awake. I was sharing with Jeff this morning. I, I don't know how the secular world got so attached to Christmas. But if I had to pick two of the holidays, it would not be the birth of Christ as much as it would be the sacrifice he made for me. Curious to know, how many of us in here are fathers? Almost all of us. Knowing that Christ was going to the cross to die for my sins, he did it willingly. God the Father, even though he knew things I don't understand, that Jesus would be with him after the resurrection allowed him to go to the cross and endure human suffering for my sins that I cannot even imagine. <laughs> if I knew that my son was going to be re resurrected, I don't know that I could put my son in a position to endure what Christ endured for me. And then there was Sunday. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to gather here. Lord, I thank you personally for your sacrifice on the cross. We're reminded of that this week so clearly. Your suffering, humiliation, taking the sin of the world upon you. And then there was Sunday. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. All right, I'm good to go. But this microphone, man, this is like, this is like cool, isn't it? So powerful. Ben, I mean, like, how do you stay so humble, man? I, I, I can't do it with this, I mean, this sound system. This is not this is not good for my ego, believe me. You know, I don't need any help. Carla will not be able to live with me when I get home. You know, I don't need any help with my ego. So um, so guys, um, I have a song for you this morning as we start. Um, we're doing um, you know, through our series, we're taking different topics that are important to men, and we start a new topic today marriage in the context of using uh, Joshua as kind of a foundation and then building on uh, men's issues, marriage. And I have a song for you, and I, and I, and I, and I want to offer this song to you um, with a little bit of tongue-in-cheek. This song is kind of hilarious to me, um, and it's kind of sweet song. 
Um, I thought about offering this song in my office, that when you enter my office, um, that this song would be playing. It would be kind of funny because when couples come into my office, this is not what they're typically singing. Let me read the words to you. I wouldn't change you if I could. I wouldn't change a thing about you if I could. The way you are just suits me to a T. A princess in a storybook, a king upon his throne. That's what we are and you belong to me. I wouldn't change you if I could. I love you as you are. You're all that I would wish for if I wished upon a star. An angel sent from heaven, you're everything that's good. You're perfect just the way you are. I wouldn't change you if I could. Welcome to counseling. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I offer this to you. And this morning is assess and evaluate your marriage, your traveling companion. May you hear the voice of God through this song. Thank you. 
Yeah. Amen. I'm going to play that all weekend just for Carla. <laughs> Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Act like men. Be strong. Words from 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Follow with me as we read our introductory paragraph. And um, as we begin this morning, I want to make sure everybody's got two handouts. So, Tony, if you could make sure that uh, we've got that uh, second handout. Uh, obviously, the handout number one is the one we always have, a little picture on it, our, our logo uh, for Joshua. But I want you to have the assessment, um, the 10 assessments. So if you don't have that, uh, raise your hand and um, uh, Tony will get that uh, to you. Or you went to get the stack. So when he comes back, uh, raise your hand and he'll get that to you. So follow with me as we read our introductory paragraph. Joshua, take the land, be the man. Here they come. Raise your hand if you need a second handout. The book of Joshua is the book of conquest. The battlefield is Canaan, and it is where God keeps his promise that he made with Abraham. In this study, we will use the land possessed by Joshua and the people of Israel as a metaphor to understand how we take possession of what it means to be a Christian man. We will examine 10 issues that men face every day. Each day is a battle to be faced with courage, strength, and faith. You must be courageous, will you? Marriage, intimate companion. Marriage is not for the coward, is it not? Uh, it'll test you. You know, you got married thinking that that was going to solve all your problems. Did it do that? I've been a counselor for 20, over 25 years now. It's hard to believe. I've heard some crazy stories in my office. And so much of what I do as a counselor uh, is break down idealism and bring it to realism. Uh, pre-marriage counseling is a fight against idealism. That's what pre-marriage counseling is. In, in some ways, it's useless. In some ways. Because it's like you bring it up stuff that the newlyweds face and oh, no, that won't happen to us because we're in love. When Carla and I were going through <coughs> pre-marriage counseling, uh, we got married at Highland Park Presbyterian Church. It's been so long now, uh, I can't remember who the guy was. I think he, I think he was licensed. <laughs> I think he was legit, you know. And uh, and we're we're doing the the, the quickie version of uh, pre-marriage counseling because we were uh, both living in Philadelphia, and so we'd come in uh, a week before the wedding um, to do pre-marriage counseling. And I'll never forget the question that he asked Carla that I knew I was in trouble. And he, and he asked, so um, what expectations do you have about marriage? And Carla immediately said, none, I don't have any. And I looked at her and I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I'm in trouble. Because I knew she had a lot of expectations. That was part of the reason I was married her. Because I knew that she had a vision for her and a vision for me. 
And she was sitting there saying, I don't have any expectations. I mean, everybody has expectations. What did you think marriage was going to be? And has it worked out that way? Probably not. Probably not. So pick up your pen. <clears throat> Let's go to work. I have three questions for you that I want you to engage in. Three questions. Question number one, what are three words that you would use to describe your wife? Three words. Now again, this is just between you and God, so you don't have to show this to her. You're safe, this is a safe place. Um, just make sure if you write it down that you don't just leave your paper laying out on the kitchen counter. What would be three words that you would use to describe your wife? In all seriousness, three words. <clears throat> Just a uh, second part of that is what are three words that she would use to describe you? Probably a lot different. Probably a lot different. What would she use to describe you? You know, certainly words that I would use to describe Carla is uh, passionate for Jesus. No doubt about that. I mean, if I ever thought about straying, uh, she would put me in the category that Ruth Graham put Billy Graham in. They, they asked Billy Graham, or they asked Ruth, <clears throat> if, if she and Billy had ever struggled with divorce, if divorce had ever been an issue. And she said, oh, no. We've never thought about divorce, but murder I've considered often. <laughs> True quote. Uh, Carla would be in that category. She doesn't believe in divorce, but uh, she would kill me. She's very intentional. And I would say that she's uh, full of grace. Um, certainly been illustrated uh, in our marriage. <clears throat> Second question, how would your wife like you to change? Not how would you like to change, but what would your wife like to see changed in you? Oftentimes what we say, even in our marriage workshop, by the way, which is June 25th and 26th, Friday and Saturday, shameless plug, Mark, it's all about marketing. Uh, but what we often say is our wives hold the blueprint for our growth. Even when we don't know where we need to grow, our wives know. And so if you really want to get into a, uh, an uncomfortable conversation, ask your wife that second question. How would, how would you like for me to change? What, what do you see in me? that needs to change. You may not like the answer. Question number three, what are you willing to change as an expression of love for your wife? It might go something like this in your head. I don't want to change. I don't see a need for change, but I will for you. I will for you. I think that is, um, really in many ways what God asks from us in terms of the idea of fidelity 
in our relationship with him, that we would obey out of an intimate connection with him, not obey out of performance and in order to be approved. That's not obedience, that's legalism. But obedience is intended to be lived out in our faith with God out of an intimate and organic relationship. I want to change. I want to be what you want me to be because of your love for me. And so when we look at change, even in our marriage, <clears throat> it's intended not to be out of performance, but because I love you so much, I'm willing to give up X. I'm willing to change X. Now, I want you to take a couple minutes <clears throat> and uh, turn over to a partner and interact with question two and question three. Okay? So take a couple minutes, interact with your partner, question two, question three. Miss Meredith, one day, I don't know if you got to tell me if you remember this story. Uh oh. But, uh, she told me about it on the elevator. It was after sexing that we sometimes forget the qualities of our spouse, like I go. And you came home, and she was sitting in the chair, and she closed her eyes, and she goes, What color my eyes? She told me your response was, You've been talking to somebody. <laughs> Yeah. No doubt, what my wife wants me to change is I get a vision things, the way things I want things to work, and I'm building toward that. When she's involved, and I don't try to change her in the process. She'll like, you'll get upset if things aren't working the way you want them to. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I know what we'll do. We'll assemble, we'll assemble the committee and we'll determine what you need to change and let you know. This is our survey friend. We go out to eat once or twice a month. All right.
Let's uh, continue uh, together the interaction. Fran, I would strongly encourage you to take those three questions uh, home and uh, have a conversation with your wife. So much about what this session is about today uh, relative to marriage is I want you to have interaction with your wife. And that may be scary as all get out to someone. You mean talk to her? You know? Yeah, talk to her. So let's look at uh, Joshua this morning. Turn over to Joshua chapter 3, and we'll dig in. And as we prepare to, to uh, walk through uh, chapter 3, I want to expose you to uh, the Bible Project. Uh, these guys are incredibly gifted, and I would strongly encourage you to use these guys, uh, this uh, website, um, as, a, as a resource in your own study. So just to expose you to that, I, I want uh, to um, play this uh, beginning part of an overview uh, of the first five chapters. We'll, we'll, he'll stop it as we get into chapter five, because we're looking at chapter uh, three this morning. But the Bible Project overview of Joshua. The book of Joshua. Let's back up and remember the story so far. So God chose Abraham, and then his family became the people of Israel, who are then enslaved down in Egypt. And so through Moses, God rescued Israel out of Egypt. He made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai, and he brought them through the wilderness. So Israel then camped outside the promised land, and Moses called them to obey God's commands so that they could show all the other nations what God is like. The book of Joshua picks up right after Moses has died and Israel's ready to enter the land. So the story of Joshua is designed with four main movements. Joshua first leads Israel into the promised land, and then once they're there, they meet all this hostility from the Canaanites, and so they engage them in battle. Then after their victories, Joshua divides up the promised land as the inheritance for the 12 tribes, and then the book concludes with these final speeches that Joshua gives to the people. So let's dive in and we'll see how all of it flows together. The first section begins with Moses' death, and Joshua is appointed as Israel's new leader. And the author intentionally presents Joshua as a new Moses. So like Moses, Joshua calls the people to obey the Torah, which means the covenant commands that they were given at Mount Sinai. And then Joshua sends spies into the land, just as Moses did back in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, except it goes way better this time. In fact, even some Canaanites turn and follow the God of Israel. Joshua then leads all Israel across the Jordan River and into the land. Just like the sea parted for Moses in the Exodus, so here the river Jordan parts and the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant across, leading all Israel with them. The cool, great resource, great resource in terms of all um, of your uh, different passages. Um, the Bible Project. Um, I, um, I don't have the website exactly, but on your notes um, is the um, research, yeah, BibleProject.com. BibleProject.com. It's on your notes there. So, last week we covered uh, the second chapter uh, where the spies are sent in. They engage Rahab. Uh, Rahab makes this incredible Gentile uh, confession of the God of the Jews, of Israel. 
uh, and she is grafted in as part of Jesus' genealogy. It's an amazing illustration of how God welcomes all into the family of God to those who express faith. And that's what Rahab did. So now we're ready to actually see all of Israel cross over the Jordan River. Read with me chapter three. Joshua was up early on his way from Shittim with all the people of Israel with him. He arrived at the Jordan and camped before crossing over. After three days, leaders went through the camp and gave out orders to the people. When you see the covenant chest of God, your God, carried by the Levitical priests, start moving, follow it. Follow it. You ought to underline that, highlight it, get your pink highlighter out, highlight, follow it. Follow it. Every morning when we have our journaling time, at some point before you uh, head out the door, I hope that you spend five minutes, 30 minutes, an hour, just getting your head on straight. And you're not leading the charge. You're following. Put yourself in that category. I may be called to lead, but before I lead, I must follow. I follow. Who are you following? Well, I'm on my own. I'm not following anybody. Hmm, bad idea. Follow it. Make sure you keep a proper distance between you and it about a half a mile. Half a mile. I don't want to be closer. Well, we find out later, those who got closer and touched the covenant, they died. Be sure now to keep your distance and you'll see clearly the route to take. You've never been on this road before. Amen. Amen. Never been on this road. I don't know which way to go. God, lead me. I'm a follower every day. Then Joshua addressed the people, sanctify yourselves. Tomorrow God will work miracle wonders among you. And Joshua instructed the priests, Take up the chest of the covenant, step out before the people. So they took it up and processed before the people. And God said to Joshua, and listen to this, God speaks. This very day, I will begin to make you great in the eyes of all Israel. They'll see for themselves that I'm with you in the same way that I was with Moses. You will command the priests who are carrying the chest of the covenant when you come to the edge of the Jordan's waters, stand there on the riverbank. Amazing words from God. And then Joshua addressed the people of Israel. Attention, listen to what God, your God has to say. This is how you'll know that God is alive among you. He will completely dispossess before you the Canaanites, Hittites, Hivites, Parasites, Gerasites, Amorites, Jebusites, Mosquito Bites. Look at what's before you. The chest of the covenant. Think of it. The master of the entire earth is crossing the Jordan as you watch. Now take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, one man from each tribe. When the soles of the feet of the priests carrying the chest of God, master of all the earth, 
touch the Jordan's water, the flow of water will be stopped and the water coming from upstream will pile up in the heat. The crossing of the Red Sea, as, as I've said to you many times, was the resurrection of the Old Testament. All through the Old Testament, the people would talk about the Red Sea parting as we would talk about the resurrection as the central uh, evidence of the power of God and his interaction with time and space. It was the Red Sea and God in order to endorse the leadership of Joshua gives Joshua the same identity. Just as Moses saw the waters part, Joshua saw the waters part. In order to stamp, give his stamp of approval upon Joshua, his leader. And that's what happened. The people left their tents to cross the Jordan, led by the priests carrying the chest of the covenant. And when the priests got to the Jordan and their feet touched the water at the edge, the Jordan overflows its banks throughout the harvest, the flow of water stopped. It piled up in a heap a long way off at Adam, which is now Zarephath. The river went dry all the way down to the Arab Sea, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea, and the people crossed facing Jericho. And they stood, and there they stood. Those priests carrying the chest of the covenant stood firmly planted on dry ground in the middle of the Jordan while all Israel crossed on dry ground. And finally, the whole nation was across the Jordan and not one wet foot. I love that. And not one wet foot. I want to show you um, just a three-minute clip. This is, this is like a 30-minute teaching um, of a pastor who's taken um, a, a trip to the Holy Land. And, and it's, it's kind of a modern way to see this. And it's, it's interesting in terms of the historical facts. You can watch the whole thing on your own if, if you want to. I just wanted to show you just three minutes. And he gives some interesting up-to-date facts about what was going on in the Jordan River at the time that Israelites crossed. Watch this. Well, welcome to the Holy Land and this biblical site of the crossing of the Jordan River. This miracle that took place by the Israelites crossing the Jordan River here is probably one of the most underappreciated miracles in the Bible, simply because we don't understand the geography of the land and what the Bible says. So at this biblical site, we'll be looking at the location of this place and why that's so important. We'll talk about the historical background of this location. We'll be looking at some of the amazing places of interest at this site. We'll see the key events in the Bible that took place here and we'll end with a faith lesson in order to learn the major lessons God desires from us at this important biblical site. So I think you'll find this video very enlightening and transforming to your life. Just to let you know up front, the water backed up from right here about 20 miles north or about 30 kilometers north. It was about two miles wide or about three over three kilometers wide. It was about 120 feet deep this was a massive lake that formed, a massive reservoir. And so God backed this water up and he says it backed it clear up to Adam. And Adam, that town is about 20 miles north of here. So by doing the geography and, and analyzing the land, we can see how big this miracle is. Now, when we read the Bible, we normally don't read it taking into account the geography and where these places are. 
Uh, sometimes as we've learned about this miracle, maybe in Sunday school or somewhere, it just seems like they're crossing this little narrow stream, but the miracle was massive. And scripture says that they crossed over during the time of flood stage when the waters were overflowing their banks nonetheless. So anyway, we're gonna be looking at this absolutely astounding miracle. And I think you'll find some things fascinating about it. Now I should also mention that the amount of water today in the Jordan River at this location is much less than in the time of the Bible. Most of the water today is used for farming, both by Israel and the country of Jordan, so not much water gets down this far. In fact, there is virtually no water from the Jordan River that now arrives at the Dead Sea. However, in biblical times, the Jordan River was much larger here at this location. Now the crossing place of the Israelites entering the promised land is just opposite of Jericho. And that's Jericho is just right there. Okay, so there's a tributary right here. Should mention also that this place is where Jesus was baptized, where John the Baptist baptized, Jesus' disciples baptized. And then Elijah parted the waters of the Jordan here was then taken up to heaven in a fiery chariot from here. And then Elisha parted the waters after Elijah was taken to heaven from here. So this is a very prominent place. And how fitting that the place where the Israelites crossed the promised land is the same place where Jesus would be baptized. You watch the rest of that on your own. Isn't that amazing? 20 miles wide, 150 feet deep massive reservoir can you imagine it just backs up it's like you know you're kind of you're kind of walking across and this this big wall of water is right there god is with us and imagine what the canaanites must have been thinking holy cow did you see did you hear what the god of the israelites did for them how will we ever defeat them. If God is for them, what will we do? And gentlemen, that's why we are intended every day. To get up and follow that God. Who are you going to follow? I, I, I assure you that what you do each day and I do it each day and where we're going to go is far less important than who we're going to follow. You know, if you're following the right person, if you're traveling with the right people, you'll figure out the direction. But if you're with wrong people and you're following the wrong person, you're even following your own inclination, then the route that you're going to take will lead you in crazy places. The great leader Joshua was instructed by God to make sure that they followed. When the Ark of the Covenant was raised, you move. You don't go until God moves. What he was teaching them at the same time was this will be a new experience. New experience. 
The long journey in the desert was over and the mystery of an unknown country and an unknown life lay before them. The people grew serious. It was the impressiveness of a new experience. When I first became a Christian years ago, Steve, and I was followed up by Campus Crusade. And I remember the very first Campus Crusade meeting that I went to uh, was uh, 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 Transformal Concept Number 3. Steve's an old Campus Crusader, and he would know this. In, in Transferable Concept, there were nine of them, I think that's right, um, was how to uh, walk by the Spirit. And I still remember being in that classroom at the University of Tennessee and um, um, the teaching uh, was on the uh, walking in the spirit and the words were being used. The Christian life is an adventure. The Christian life is an adventure. Man, I was, I was in. I was, I was, I was an old uh, recovering hippie still hadn't cut my hair yet. And it's just like an adventure. I never heard that growing up in church. I mean, all I ever heard kind of growing up in church is like, well, you know, you need to be good. You need to be nice. Be nice. Be obedient. Don't, don't do anything bad. And it's like, you know, I kind of held on to that till I got to college. And by the time I got to college in the dorm room, uh-uh, mama ain't here. Mama ain't here. But man, I have never let go of the idea of the Christian life being an adventure. I believe that every day. It's a new experience. It's a fresh day. Every day is a gift from God. Thank you, God, for this day. I'll follow. You lead. I'm ready. This ought to be fun. And what God was teaching his people in in, in teaching us today, he gave them story after story after story after story. He told stories. He had them living out stories to show that he was the God of the impossible. I can part water. I can kill uh, those who are against you. God always makes a way. He always makes a way. He is the God of the impossible. Now, does that mean he does everything that you want him to do and everything that I want him to do? Like he's like, you know, like the magic genie God, you just rub the the, the genie lamp? Of course not. But that's where our surrender and our trust in a God who is for us and has chosen us. I mean, if he has chosen us, will he not provide for his own? I mean, what kind of God who uh, has a child that prays to him for bread would give him a stone? I mean, that's the teaching of Jesus. And I believe he makes a way. I don't always like the way, but I believe he is the God of the impossible. And if you're going to walk with God, you have got to get used to that phrase right there. 
I am with you. I am with you. Well, I know you're kind of with me, but could you just change the circumstances? No, I'm not going to change the circumstances, but I'll be with you. Well, okay, if you won't change the circumstances, how about changing the people? How about taking the people out? You know, it's like a pastor friend of mine said, you know, if it weren't for all those doggone people, the Great Commission would have been fulfilled a long time ago. You know, they're so miserable. I've met some of them. You've met some of them. Miserable people. But it's like, no, I've put people and I've put circumstances in your life to grow you. I've even given you that life to grow you. I'm with you. God has given us examples of how he wants us to live through models. Joshua's our model. He wants us to be followers, to be prepared for the adventure, understand that he always makes a way and that he's with us in order to lead us to manhood. So manhood, <clears throat> marriage. This idea of marriage um, there is no doubt that God intended marriage um, for our growth, not our comfort. You know, you may have thought that you got married um, so that, you know, everything would be easy. But that that kind of goes away pretty quick. I mean, marriage is hard. I, I am humbled and proud to say that Carla and I will be celebrating our 39th wedding anniversary on May the 29th. And we have gone through some really, really hard times. Um, hard times. Nobody gets to, to 39 years of marriage without hard times. And I know there's men in here that, that have been married longer than I have. And uh, I've been married longer than some of you have lived. And then there's men in this room who have experienced the trauma and the tragedy of divorce. And it, it's hard. And again, divorce, uh, there's a great book out, if you've never read it, called Redemptive Divorce. Sometimes reward, uh, divorce is what God uses. Um, God hates divorce. I've heard that, you know, heard that in the Bible. Well, he hates a lot of other things too. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. Uh, if you've been through divorce, man, I feel great compassion uh, for you. It's hard. But I would strongly encourage you, uh, especially those of you who have, uh, are, are divorced, have been divorced, uh, redemptive divorce. I can't remember the author um, of that book, but um, if you know, email me and I'll I'll find you the author. Redemptive divorce. But this morning, what I what I want you to do is I want you to I want to ask you to assess where are you. Um, 
Proverbs 18.22, you know, um, talks about finding a good wife. Most marriage problems would disappear if we would simply speak, talk to our wives with the same kindness, courtesy, forethought, and respect with which we speak to our co-workers. It, isn't it tragic that you and I can be triggered by our wives in a way that we would never be able to trigger each other. I mean, Carla can say things to me that Ron would say to me, and I just, you know, I just flip Ron off, you know? <laughs> you know? I can't do that with Carla. I cannot. I mean, man, it's like so hard. You know? I love her. I love her dearly. And these intimate relationships show both how we are broken and how we need to grow. So what I've given you, put in your hand, is an assessment. It's front and back. We use these uh, in our counseling practice and um, in our marriage workshop. And I want to ask every man to commit to go through this assessment with your wife. Everybody willing to do that? Raise your hand if you'll go through this assessment. Okay, I'm going to put you on the spot. You know, I'm not going to ask you to come forward if possible, wait, uh, but I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand. Um, and what I want you to do is work through this. Um, I'm on the side, uh, it's two-sided handout, vision for growing marriage. That's, that's general. But, but a lot of you are in the empty nest stage. And so the back side this marriage in the empty nest stage is a little bit different when you don't have kiddos running around. But what you can do is make a copy of this, give it to your wife, ask her to mark it uh, how she would see the marriage, and then ask her to mark it how she thinks you see the marriage. And so, you know, have her assess herself how she sees the marriage, and then ask her to assess how she thinks you see it, and you do the same. Mark it for yourself, and then mark it for how you think she sees it. Um, the questions give you a broad framework of how marriage works. The point is, so often we don't live our marriage lives uh, and live out our lives intentionally and deliberately. We just general. We're just general about it. <clears throat> and then, and then, you know, the marriage is deteriorating, and we had no idea. We get Baltimore culted. You know what Baltimore culted means, don't you? It means she just packed up and left in the middle of the night and wound up in Indianapolis. That's what happened with Baltimore cults. So what I want you to do is take this assessment, work it through. Um, again, if you're an empty nester. You've got one for yourself. The point is, again, talk to your wife. Be deliberate. Be deliberate. God has given us a guideline. And, and the most important guideline is we get up every morning and we commit to follow. You cannot move out and take the land unless you're willing to follow. Submit to God, surrender to him, and then move out. And I'm suggesting to you part of, of the battle of the day um, over the next week is to sit with your wife and do an assessment, and I'll ask you about that next week.
Let's close the prayer. Father, thank you um, so much for how you've given us your word um, and you've invited us into a great adventure. Help us to see that in a way that brings honor to you and healing to our broken hearts. We love you and are grateful, especially for the risen Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Have a great Easter weekend. See you next week.